So with that, I am pleased to welcome Dr. Linda Blade. Linda is an All-American, a coach, and the president of Athletics Alberta. Linda Blade has been fighting for fair treatment of women in sport for over three decades. The author of Unsporting, How Trans Activism and Science Denial Are Destroying Sport, Linda is going to speak to us about the evolution of policies that allowed males to compete in female sport and the approaches used to verify eligibility for the women's category, category, both historically and going forward. With that, thank you, Linda. Take it away. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really honored to be here. And I, I am going to talk about how colonization of women's sports happened. Um, and I want to start with a statement that really, before I share, I'm going to sh share who the actors are in this story. Um, but before I do that, I really want to say one thing, and I want to make it abundantly clear that irrespective of the players involved, it is the International Olympic Committee, the IOC, that bears the ultimate responsibility for the current state of dystopia in women's sports. So let me give you a quick background. Everything that we have uh, been worried about here in the late last few years, uh, it can be traced back to essentially to sex verification. So the, the, the need to actually uh, verify it, that female athletes are truly female. And this came about because as soon as the women were allowed to be in the Olympic games, immediately men were caught uh, trying to keep, compete as women. So it became very obvious that there had to be a test. So the gatekeeping started, there were various methods and, and I covered this in, in the book that was shown there and hi to my co-author Barbara Kay, I think you're here. Um, anyway, um, so we went through this in the book, various methods and the first one is kind of the universal from 1930 to 1948, uh, there was kind of a sort of a universal method and I call it the detective. I just got, gave names to all these different methods, um, essentially, uh, this one is was simple. Like if you notice a woman who kind of looks like a guy and you're worried about it, that you can do a report. And if there's a suspicion there, then the woman in question has to undergo sex verification test. Eh, it's kind of not so great because, you know, nobody wants to tell on anybody else, but that was one way. And then by 1948, um, they introduced a certificate. So the certificate was that women had to come to an international competition with a certificate from their country of origin saying you are a woman, a female. Uh, and then the next time between just leading up to Mexico Olympics in 1968, so this would have been 1966 to 67, there was one time, one year, where they unfortunately had a thing where they made women parade naked before a panel of gynecologists so they could see their genitalia. And this was obviously humiliating, horrifying. And it happened only once. And of course there was a hue and cry. Um, but unfortunately that particular method is the one everybody goes back to, uh, to invoke when they're talking about how we should never do sex verification, it's humiliating. So keep that in mind. And then right after that from 1968 Olympics and to right up to 1996, uh, they introduced the cheek swab, which is just taking a Q-tip, swab the inside of your cheek, get mucal cells, and look for the bar bodies and the X chromosomes. Um, and once that test was done, 
Uh, a lot of people in my era, you had that test, you got the certificate, you know, all you had to do is one test and you get the certificate telling everybody you're a female. And that seemed pretty good. And I was working quite well. But then in the Barcelona, or sorry, in Atlanta, 1996, the IOC decided to try to improve the accuracy of the test and actually go straight to testing for the Y chromosomes SRY gene, which is the male gene. And so that required blood sampling and it required 50 medical volunteers and it was very complex and well, it required blood taking, right? So uh, three, 3,387 female athletes were tested that way in Atlanta. And uh, of course, technicians found it costly and labor intensive. And at the time, at the same time as that was happening, IOC leaders became influenced by various um, social grievances like the, the feminists were still angry over the humiliation of the parade. And uh, you know, there was, this was the era of the AIDS crisis and, and people felt like there was uh, not as, maybe not as much acceptance of LGB people as there should have been. And then there was this gender ideology beginning to spread. And so by 1999, the IOC made the decision, the decision to abandon sex verification altogether. Now, in 2000, in, a, in an article published in Nature, the IOC explained why they did this. And um, they blamed it on technical uh, inconvenience and social awkwardness and gatekeeping in women's sports would just have to just be stopped. Now, for me and women like me, this was maddening. And, and I'll read you why partly, I'll just read a small segment of what happened in that, that article in Nature magazine, um, the journal. Um, and it's a, it, it goes like this. At the time of testing, all female athletes at the 1996 Atlanta games were offered a questionnaire written in both English and French asking whether their view, whether their view uh, in their view of testing the females should be uh, continued in future Olympics and whether or not they were made anxious by the testing procedure. Of the 928 athletes who responded, 82% felt that testing should be continued and 94% indicated that they were not made anxious by the procedure. 46 athletes were made anxious a little bit by the testing requirements that preceded their competitive events. Um, now, who knows whether they're anxious because they were getting nervous about their events or anxious about the test. But in any case, an overwhelming majority of female athletes indicated when asked that they wanted sex verification to continue and they wanted the screening. And yet the IOC in that same uh, paper conclude that the methods were too, uh, caused too much emotional and social injury to a tiny fraction of athletes to make it worthwhile. As soon as they did that, as soon as they discontinued the sex verification, dominoes fell quickly, all leading up to the 2015 decision, which, you know, so now if we, this is now 2000. So in that period of time between 2000, 2015, um, there was a lot going on and um, a lot of it started with a little bit of an article even in the late 90s, there was a, a scientist named Louis, Louise um, uh, Guren uh, did a paper, was doing some research on transsexuals and some of their performance parameters. And 
Gurin was a close friend of the top IOC doctors. So they started talking about some of what's going on. And, and um, so the results were known a few years in advance, even though the paper of Gurin was only published in 2004, um, they already knew the results. So 19 male to female transsexuals. So these were um, trans people who actually had the surgery, um, had obviously T deprivation. Um, and it showed that plasma levels and testosterone of yeah, testosterone and hemoglobin went down to about female levels, which is somewhat common. Um, muscle mass dropped a little, but remained way higher than the female. So they took a cross section on a CAT scan and the thighs like were still way bigger and the muscle mass, uh, muscle um, cross-sectional area was still way bigger in the transsexuals and the females. And um, they were obviously still taller. They were heavier. In fact, being on estrogen actually caused them to gain weight. Um, and most changes happened, even though they looked at a three-year span, most of the changes happened within the first year. So four key actions emerged from this kernel of thought and the limited data. The first one was the Stockholm Consensus, IOC policy of 2004. Um, suddenly, because of this thinking, that maybe it, you know, living as a woman and having some of like the surgery more or less mitigated mitigated the advantage, which the actual paper of Gurin didn't even prove that or even support that. But anyway, um, the IOC decided that they would allow male to female transgender transsexuals after three years of living as a woman and after having, of course, had the surgery. Um, and here is how Gurin put it in the paper, depending, quote, depending on the level of arbitrariness one wants to accept, it is justifiable that reassigned male to female compete with other women. In other words, this statement says, it's an admission that from the very start of the post-sex verification era, it was acceptable to make a rule about the female category that were arbitrary, make rules that were arbitrary, even if they might put women, female athletes at a disadvantage. That was actually from the start, 2000 and to 2004, in that zone, already that was indicated that would be acceptable. And then a second strand, so I'm talking about four different strands of things that were happening at this time. So that was the first one, the Stockholm consensus. The second one, there were, it's kind of surprising to me, there was an NCAA activist in 2009 to 2010, uh, two lesbians, Dr. Pat Griffin and Helen Carroll, were very upset about the closeted experience they had experienced in the 80s as athletes. And so they worked with the Women's Sports Foundation to come up with a think tank document called Equal Opportunity for Transgender Student Athletes. Um, they disputed the surgery. And after looking at Gurin's work again, they decided that one year should be enough because Gurin said most of the changes that, that happen with, um, with suppression of testosterone, all the physical changes, most of them happen within the first year. But they interpret that to mean that one year was good enough to make all the changes happen that you need to make it equal, men, men equal to women. But that was not what that report said at all. Anyway, so then they decided randomly that it should be 10 nanomole per liter based on the Gurin paper. And yet they left the part out where male physical advantage was not substantially diminished by the T deprivation. 
And then those women worked really hard to, and promoted this so much. And in 2010, the NCAA accepted that. And that was the first time we saw that 10 nanomole per liter uh, figure that came in. So it was partly the NCAA women that you know, caused that to happen. And then the third thing was Joanna Harper, which we talk about in the book. Joanna Harper was a Canadian uh, born runner, male runner, quite a good marathon runner. Um, had transitioned to, to wanting to uh, uh, identify as a woman uh, in somewhere in the two, like 2005, 2006. Uh, started looking around for other male to female runners to see um, if, if uh, he could do a study. Uh, so it took seven years on, and of course social media was new right then, so on Facebook and everything, to seven years to find people like him who were trying to present as women and run in women's races and finally got um, eight people together and did a sort of this anecdotal kind of study. It wasn't even, it wasn't, it doesn't amount to an official scientific investigation because there just weren't enough uh, subjects. And um, so what happened was um, Harper just looked at the times, self-reported times that happened before transition and the self-reported running times in marathon, half marathon after transition. And sometimes that period of time, pre-transition post, sometimes in some of the subjects, it was only two years between the two. And in other subjects, it was 30 years between the two. So, you know, I don't know, maybe memories were great, not so great, but then they have this thing called age grading in master's sport where you can actually see like relative to the top male where they are relative to the top female where they are, not very accurate, but this is the conclusion um, that Harper came up with in that paper. As a group, the eight, eight subjects had remarkably similar age grade scores both in both male and female gender, making it possible to state that trans women run distance races at approximately the same level for the respective gender, both before and after transition. The problem was this wasn't actually correct. Uh, it was a small sample, so, she, so Harper couldn't do an actual statistical analysis. They used age grading, of course, which is not accurate. Um, and then the most important thing for me is that Harper actually discarded one of the data points. The runner number seven actually improved massively after transition, so got even better as a, as a runner uh, than before transition. And Harper just said, well, this is an, obviously an outlier and just discarded that data, even though it was, it was just as valid as any of the other points. And if, if that runner number seven had been kept into, in that study, the averages would have been, would have not shown anything about you know, mitigation. So um, that was to me kind of cheating in a, in a research study. It was unethical. Um, and, but the one thing Harper did say was that the, whatever the results were in this sort of anecdotal study, it only applied to running, not other sports. And yet, because Harper was a trans person and did this study, Harper became celebrated by the IOC and they put Harper on the, as the expert on trans in women's sport on the medical IOC Medical Commission. And, and they let Harper and they, they applied that result to all sports. And you know, it had nothing to do with strength and weightlifting or anything else. 
And then the fourth, the fourth strand of all this was a, a, a cyclist in Canada named Kristen Worley, who had been a transsexual, like had undergone the surgery and discovered when they were trying to compete, he was trying to compete with the women and train that, that having been castrated had no testosterone whatsoever. And because the male body does need testosterone to function, uh, Worley found that they just couldn't train at all for a cycling, whether it was for males or for female races. And so asked for a therapeutic exemption, TUE, to use some testosterone so that he could keep riding and realized that that was just felt like that was discriminatory. Uh, and so instead of saying, well, castration doesn't work to have a man in a woman's sport, instead of doing that, Worley took uh, the UCI uh, and, and Cycling Canada to court in the Ontario Human Rights uh, Court. And so um, in the book, and there's uh, the, the story of Worley's journey is in this book called, in this thing called um, Woman Enough. And in that book, I was reading through it and Worley basically was on the phone with the top IOC medical commissioner all the time. In fact, the person in the Canadian um, Human Rights Tribunal remarked um, that it's almost incredible. In, even the UCI president said, I don't know how you can talk to Jacques, Jacques Roga, or I don't know who was in charge as the president of IOC at the time, but Worley could literally pick up the phone and call the IOC and the medical commission anytime he wanted and was absolutely advocating and, and sort of, you know, basically they were hearing the trans people, but I mean, in a way that nobody had access compared to these people. So Worley and Harper had so much access and so Worley won the case and that scared the UCI at United Cycling, um, it scared the IOC. All the sports were scared that now trans people were gonna be taking sports organizations to court. And in the meantime, the IOC was probably thinking, okay, we're gonna lose human rights cases and we're gonna just have to give, you know, if a person is fully castrated any, and we're gonna have to give them a, an exemption and use some testosterone, uh, to have exogenous testosterone in their system, even though that would be a doping offense normally. Um, why are we doing this at all? And so instead of saying it's a mistake to even have, even be trying this, they basically threw open the doors and that's when we came up with the 2015, that's where the IOC came up with the conclusion in 2015 that no surgery should be required and one year of self-ID and keeping your hormonal like testosterone level to 10 below 10 nanomoles per liter. And that would level the playing field. That was just like easy solution, away we go. But we know how, we know what happened. After that, the dystopian outcome for female athletes was starting to pop up everywhere. We had 2015 Fallon Fox smashing the orbital of Tamika Brent. We had 2017 to 19, Terry Miller and Andrea Yearwood uh, you know, causing havoc for the Connecticut girls in high school track and field, Chelsea Mitchell, Selena Soule, Alana Smith, all of these people were losing out. And then we had in 2019, CeCe Telfer winning the women's hurdles in the NCAA division two, um, after having been ranked no better than 390th in the men's event. So 390th ranked and first, no, there's not a mitigation there. It's not a level playing field there. 
And then we had, of course, the infamous cases in 2021. We had Laurel Hubbard in the Olympics weightlifting. We had Leah Thomas came out in, that, in November, December of that year, last year. And one of the things I wanted to note about was after Hubbard had competed in the Olympics in Tokyo and everybody was in an uproar, um, of course, the IOC medical commissioner had to come out and say, obviously, the 2015 thing, the 2015 policy was not fit for purpose. It had to be amended somehow. And so what did they do? The IOC went right back to the trans community for further consultation. We noticed online, all of us women, that people like, you know, Veronica Ivy and all these people were, were bragging that the IOC was talking with them and consulting with them and none of us were able to speak and consult. And so, um, you know, it, that put us on the track to creating the international consortium, which I'll get to at the end, but um, it was frustrating because we even sent a letter asking to be at the table, to be consulted as women, to have our voices heard. And the IOC, IOC said, nope, consultations are closed. We've already talked to people like you, as if we women were just sort of there off on the side. And then, um, Finally, the disastrous policy that they, their revised policy that they brought forward, the IOC brought forward in November of 2021, which we all remember was last November. Um, no surgery was, would be required now. There'd be no T reduction required. The onus would be on the female athletes to prove that a trans identified male athlete in their event had a disproportionate competitive advantage. Um, and that all of this would have to be done on a sport by sport basis by the individual sport governing bodies. So that brings us into the current state of 2022. We have, this has created an enormous problem. I mean, the IOC, you know, it relinquished gatekeeping in 2000 um, and now completely in the 2021 kicking the can down the road, making female athletes responsible for themselves, like let a man in and now you have to prove he has an advantage. Um, kick the can down the road for its international, all of the international sports federations have to, to, you know, IOC created the problem and now they're gonna just make all of the individual sport governing bodies find the solution, um, which is disgusting lack of leadership in my opinion. Policies and the policies, as we've seen this last summer, are all over the map. You know, FINA has a pretty good policy, although they still let young boys compete with little girls. Um, World Triathlon did the exact opposite. All they did was play with testosterone levels, which we all know that's not the only thing that matters. It's about your height, your weight, your all of the other measurements. It's not just about testosterone. It's about the general male body having an advantage. Um, and the problem is all of these groups are still focusing on the levels, what level of testosterone? That's like saying, let's change the volume on the TV to try to get the right channel. Like it just, it, it's, they're, they're focusing on the wrong thing. And now there's a new study that just came out a few days ago that once again shows that no amount, even 14 years of testosterone dep deprivation does not change men's muscle mass to down to the female level. So now we have 14 studies that show that there's no mitigation of the male advantage uh, with T suppression. So that, that's just amazing to me that we have to keep going through this cycle when study after study after study shows that the T suppression doesn't work. Um, 
So let's summarize. I'm going to summarize quickly here. Why are we in this mess? Well, first of all, the demise of gate, gatekeeping for female athletes by the IOC was a self-fulfilling thing. They tried something new. The IOC tried something new in 1996 and then deemed it to be too hard, too expensive. And then the IOC leadership and the scientists, their friends, they focused on only accommodating the tiny percentage of male participants. They didn't think about the females at all. That was a side factor. They were just focusing on the trans community. The NC and then the NCAA misrepresented the science to achieve what they thought would be a moral, like a more equitable, equitable policy. And then you had male, a self-ID male Harper, Joanna Harper, unethically discarding a data point because it didn't fit the narrative, proving that T suppression mitigates competitive advantage in running, and then applying that to every other sport. Um, then you had male transsexual Worley who found the IOC accommodation impossible to live by and launched a human rights suit that scared everybody. And then you had about all of the above had a direct influence on the IOC to make a decision about who can compete as a woman. But you know what was missing? One thing was missing, input from female athletes. There was zero input from female athletes. So what we have is a common, common feature here. We have twisting facts to suit a desired outcome, driven by ideology, emotion, or a preferred narrative, never allowing female athletes to say, or anybody with a female voice or concern. And when they did, the one time they did, you know, have that survey of the female athletes in Atlanta, it was irrelevant. No matter what the women said, they didn't listen. They just went ahead and did what they were going to do anyway. And so at every step along the way, the rights of the female athlete to fair and safe competition <clears throat> was given the lowest priority. It was as if the entire cohort of the world's female athletes was invisible or just basically some blank template upon which others could paint their story without consent of, of the women. So going forward, what do we do? Well, as I said, we have a consortium of women's groups like ICONS. ICONS part of the consortium. So it's an international consortium. We now have eight countries, sport groups from eight countries, women who care about you know, fairness and safety. So we have Spain, France, UK, Canada, USA, um, El Salvador, Mexico, we have New Zealand, we have Australia. So there, it's just growing and um, it's historic. Thanks to the internet, women can talk to each other. Think about any time in history, never before in history have women be able to, been able to collaborate on a concept, an idea to advocate for themselves and as a, as a unit, as a collective. And so, you know, this is really is, you know, it's easy to overlook it, but this is the first time women really can get together and have a big voice. Uh, we at this, the whole point of that consortium is to demand a seat at the table when these kinds of decisions are being made. It's the same thing, you know, that you often hear is like nothing about us without consulting us. Why not just consult with women for a change, right? So we, one of the things we've demanded, we've even sent letters to certain organizations that we seek a return to sex verification testing using updated genetic uh, methodology, but still keeping it simple, the cheek swab. No, it's not too hard. So anybody who says it's too hard is, is just 
shrugging their shoulder. It's not too expensive. The IOC makes billions of dollars off the athletes. I mean, listen to Joe Rogan. He thinks it's gross, you know, in all of these, you know, fighting uh, MMA and all these other places, they just pay athletes huge amounts of money. The IOC never has to pay athletes anything and they could walk away with billions. Yes, they can spend some money on this. And you know what? We all have to just keep pushing to make it a priority. We can do it respectfully, but we need this. And so we need to have a return to sex verification and to keep the gatekeeping in place going forward. Thank you very much.